KFBS. Vicky Turner, thank you very much, and the BFBS newsroom team. Did you know that Matisse and, and Picasso were great mugs? No, chums. It's an anagram. Probably a butt-up job. And you, you are very welcome at this week's Sit Rep Roundtable on a sunny and very warm afternoon in London town. In the next hour, Korea, war or no war? Taliban is the spring offensive underway. The Iraq inquiry, are the Americans about to let out skeletons from their cupboard? The Falklands, why the Argentinians have got the sabres out of their cupboard? The Navy, could the French, after all, get a command of the next Royal Navy carrier? Why the Russians have declared open season on the flying rhino? why nuclear non-proliferation is looking a bit too much long, and why a Lib Dem is twitching the chiefs of staff, and why a diamond scandal is drawing blood. There's more, so stay the course, so it's all out in the open, according to a special investigation. The North Koreans sunk the South Korean warship using a torpedo. North Korea says, or the National Defence Commission of North Korea says, if you push this... It could become war. Well, with me in the studio, former Daily Mail diplomatic editor John Dickey, Royal Mar- Marines Major General Julian Thompson, and from King's College London, the cyber security analyst Tim Stevens. John Dickey, the National Defence Commission say you push this one, it could become war. Are we in Whitehall, the place you inhabit? Are they thinking, yeah, it could be possible? No, they're obviously trying to play it down, but they're fascinated also by the fact that... Uh, the dear leader, Kim Jong-il, uh, from North Korea, had a visit for the first time for four years to Beijing just recently. And obviously, Do you think he was called there? Yes, I think so. And uh, he'd been trying to get there for, for a long time. And the fact that he got there meant that the Chinese wanted to do business and therefore get him back to the negotiating table. And therefore the fact that he was sitting there uh, with uh, President Jintong uh, Hao and... Um, he knew what was about to be revealed. What also is surprising is the restraint of the South Koreans. I mean, they obviously knew the evidence before it became public, and they've been remarkably laid back in, in many ways, though they say this is a stern issue. Julian Thompson, it, mm. it, it's, it's, it's not being sort of scared of the, mm. the truth of this, but I can't imagine even the dear leader of North Korea uh, saying to one of his submarine commanders or his navy, why don't you go out into South Korean territorial waters and see if you can do a Belgrano and sink something? Far more likely a local decision gone wrong. I think so, because it doesn't make sense, though I think trying to apply our logic to these decisions sometimes um, lands you up thinking the wrong way. You tend to mirror image where people are going to think, I wouldn't do that, therefore they won't. Well, sometimes they do do it. Um, Tim Stevens, now, we come to your area... And that is this whole um, cyber efficiency. We really ought to know, or somebody ought to know, who was listening, what they could have been listening to. Is it possible um, to be listening in and, and understanding that there may be capabilities in the area and therefore intentions? What is curious is that the South Koreans don't seem to have spotted the submarine or any traffic which would suggested that they were vulnerable. Well, they're not saying either way, are they? Um, it'd be surprising if somebody hadn't noticed, but um, whether that's a matter of public uh, information or not at this stage, um, it seems seems unlikely that it would be somehow. But there is an area, we're talking about an area, especially, I mean, one thinks of China that make all, you know, they make all the iPhones, and the, the Japan, they use them all. Um, you, you would have thought that bring all this technology together, 
that somebody would have known what was going on. There must be. You know when you get you, know, you get you get a robbery and everybody calls it the CCTV. Mm-hmm. I mean, if you watch television, we know that. Uh, you'd think there was some cyber CCTV of actually what happened, and so the accusations that it did happen that way must be pretty self-assured, aren't they, when they make them? Well, this is the thing. If you if you recall a way back, the the US had a great idea for a scheme called Total Information Awareness, and one of the reasons what was that? I don't remember it. It was a, a, a what in this country the the newspapers would quickly call a Big Brother scheme, uh, whereby everyone in the world would be under a net of surveillance, which would mean that nobody could get away with anything, uh, least of which uh, sinking a, a warship or a submarine or anything. Uh, but it, it founded because um, a it wasn't possible at that stage with the technology. Uh, and B, people find it way too easy to hide. Um, just the last couple of days, the Chinese have announced a scheme for, uh, by 2020 to have total uh, GPS coverage of, of the globe. Um, the Americans have... What, their own constellation of... In, indeed, yeah, yeah, that's, that's the story. Um, and the Americans have pretty much the same thing. But um, you can't necessarily say that nothing can slip through the net of surveillance. Um, Mm. But I would have thought that also, I'm, I'm very interested in, 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 in your view on this, if you didn't transmit, I mean, to use old speak, and you said to a guy verbally, go out, find a ship, sink it, no radio traffic, nothing, mm. I think it would be very difficult, A, to pick that up. The second thing is, even with, and again, I'd be interested to know, even with GPS surveillance, can you, how deep into the ocean can you penetrate? Can you pick up a submarine that, that's that has died, a dive yeah. submarine? Yeah. I suspect not, actually. Yeah. Yeah. So the way to, to, to defeat Modern technology mm. is not to use it, isn't it? That's pretty much the case. Why would a submarine commander to go out and do that? Oh, that this I agree with you. I mean, this yeah, is counterproductive, even from North Korea's own vantage mm. point. Exactly. When they want to get back to some sort of respectability with China and the rest of Asia, and to do it at this stage seems to be stupid and extreme. John, I'm interested in uh, what's happening down at your place. I mean, the Foreign Office, Whitehall, etc., and mm. Washington. They're all making the right noises. They're all saying this is dreadful, etc. They've had a long time to prepare for this because the, 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 the documentation on this has been around for weeks mm. now. Indeed. There's this story, isn't there, running around the intelligence world, that, that there's a bit of a worry that the North Korean nuclear capability may be a bit better than anybody understood it because the North Koreans may have, may have a nuclear capability which they've nicked from somebody in the West. That is a suspicion that's going around that they somehow got hold of a much more advanced um, weapon uh, than uh, so far we have uh, found out about. Or omitted. Or omitted. But it's interesting that in all the statements coming out of Washington, London, Paris and Berlin, there's no use of the word retribution. I mean, it, it's clear that... Which is, which is dip-speak, isn't which it? Which is dip-speak, uh, and they don't want to be seen to be ratcheting it up too quickly, and this is perhaps also a sign of the confusion in Whitehall and in uh, the State Department about exactly how far the North Koreans have gone. And also how far they're willing to go mm. if the other stories that are Indeed. running the mill happen to be true. Indeed. Right, let's go to Afghanistan. That's a confusing enough story. Um, yesterday, the Taliban insurgents attacked uh, Bagram Air Base. Ten were killed. Tuesday, 18 killed when Taliban hit a NATO, NATO convoy. People in Kabul are saying that this is part of a Taliban offensive called El Fakh, or Conquest. Why now? And well, what's next? Here's Jamie Gordon. 
The first attack on the US base seemed an unlikely challenge for the small group, but although the fighting went on for a few hours, Master Sergeant Tom Clemenson said the outcome of the offensive was never in doubt. Just before dawn, uh, we had a militant attack on our perimeter here at Bagram Airfield. We did have five of our own service members from NATO that were wounded. They're being treated currently, but uh, seven insurgents killed in that failed attack on our base this morning. If this is the start of the spring offensive the Taliban have promised, the aim of the attack on Bagram was clearly not designed to succeed militarily, but more likely a warning of things to come. The BBC's Mark Dummett said the insurgents stood no chance. It is a massive camp. It is protected by huge cement blast walls. On the outside of that are... Um, Afghan army positions and Afghan police positions. But I think, you know, the important thing about this, obviously, is, is the message it sends out that the Taliban are prepared to take on these extremely uh, hard targets, um, not just in the south of the country, which is the focus of the insurgency and the fighting. Meanwhile, Tuesday's suicide bombing of a NATO convoy left five US soldiers dead and saw the death of the highest-ranking Canadian soldier in their campaign so far. Women and children also numbered amongst the 18 fatalities. But despite this, ISAF spokesman Brigadier General Josef Blotz said there would have been many more attacks like this if it wasn't for the cooperation between the Afghan army and ISAF. It has become clear that the Afghan National Security Forces responsible for providing security are indeed able to, to live up uh, to their mission. They have uh, only in the last months, due to their brilliant intelligence that they gathered alongside ISAF, uh, detained a lot of potential terrorists and have uh, prevented things like we have seen today. The attacks this week are a reminder that the Taliban is willing to switch tactics and that Helmand and Kandahar are not the only centres of this continuing war. Jamie Gordon reporting for Citrep. Jamie, thank you very much indeed. Julian Thompson, um, Jamie's last point there, the attacks remind that the Taliban is not just simply willing to switch tactics, but it can switch mm. tactics. Yes, I, mean, I think that people forget that the enemy has a vote too which means that they can decide what they'll do and they plan and, and they will look at you and say, OK, they're doing things in that way. Their weakness is this. We want them to switch resources from what they're doing now to counter this new threat. Uh, and, and this is absolutely typical of how a counterinsurgency operation works. Because there was this sort of sense that uh, because we were, we were being told because the uh, Taliban, the insurgency, is losing the eyeball-to-eyeball, -eyeball, the firefight war, then it's going for IEDs, for example. Uh, it's much more flexible than that. It's much more flexible. They go for IEDs, and then when they see there's a, there's a chink somewhere, or they perceive there's a chink, even if there isn't, they'll go for that. Yeah. We too rarely look at the bigger picture, don't we, like this? We, we, we tend to... Is it because, I mean, the way that it's reported, I don't mean the, the inadequacies of the reporting people, but the way it's presented we tend to be only cope with one aspect at a time. Well, it tends to be presented, I think, in, in a very simplistic way, which sounds very condescending, but, but if you make it too complicated, people won't read about it. Um, and, and therefore it's got to be presented in a, in a sort of one, two, three way. Well, it's not like that at all. It's much more subtle. And, and the problem is, if you present it in the way that it should be presented, which is they can think too and they'll change tactics, the next question is, well, how long are we going to be there for while they 
run through the gamut of all the things they can do. It is very difficult, isn't it, John, this idea of, of the public presentation, where you've got a correspondent on the ground. It doesn't matter where it is. I mean, get a guy, for example, the independent uh, reporter, correspondent in Bangkok yesterday, gets himself shot in the leg. And the big story is he's been shot. And, in fact, he would say the bigger story... It's what's going on there, but that's how it's the mentality. How Indeed, we uh, and the difficulty is to put it in the right context because um, obviously the Taliban didn't just choose this moment out of the blue. They chose it deliberately as the, the surge is about to be uh, launched in Kandahar, which is, uh, we all know, the heart of, of the Taliban country. And therefore, to distract from these... Uh, uh, preparations and uh, and the media coverage of them, they hit right at the uh, at the essence uh, uh, of the NATO presence. Yes, uh, Tim Stevens. I mean, somebody who inhabits the sort of think tankery in in in, in say London, um, where people actually know what they're talking about. And when you talk about, for example, the Kandahar offensive, they put it together with all the other information they've got, and they can follow the story. Public that have to support whether we're there or not, for how long we're there, what money is given over at budget time. Can't do this, can it? I don't know if I'm actually qualified to comment on that, to be frank. Yeah, but it is, it is, it is a case that when you're talking about, say, your subject, you've, it's not a question of hitting a brick wall all the time, but you've got to, if you want to get it to a public area, you've sometimes got to almost simplify it. In terms of presentation? Yeah. Mm. Yes, I think so. I think that's inevitable in any field, especially a specialist field. I mean, uh, part of that, of course, is your obligation to communicate and you have to find ways to do that. Yeah. Uh, Julian, the, um, the military effort is, uh, is, is really what General Stanley McChrystal has been talking about. He's got the resources he needs and says, OK, we can actually do our military side, and then we know he then says, but the political side has got to be done. The point is that the, it's not just the uh, the military side that's uh, successful because not the whole effort is taking place the military effort is absent as he puts it in other areas and that's yes what... and i think that though he says he's got what he needs it may be what he think he needs and certainly there are some people who say he still hasn't got enough and of course the other big question is how much longer is he going to have those troop levels is it, is it open-ended? Is, is, there, is there a date on the end of it? Uh, because if there is, then you could have a very nasty surprise when you start a drawdown or you announce that you're going to start a drawdown and you suddenly find that the other side is racking, up the, racking the, the, up the offensive or racking up the action. And there's another side of this, and that is that the British always say, um, OK, well... Um, if the Americans started a drawdown, as President Obama has talked about in 2011, next year, um, then we will follow. But people are starting to say, well, if, if the British, for political reasons, uh, said, well, look, we're going to start drawing down, then the Americans would say, well, how can we stand there? Well, they would. They'd have to, they'd have to think about, about leaving. And that is a huge political... It's a huge political... Um, decision and it could rebound or it could bound either way it could it could be oh what a wonderful decision you know just about to, to uh, coming up for election time or it could be that it just brings um, everyone's anger and bitterness what the hell have we been here for 10 50 or 11 years for and we're all pulling out 
John, the, uh, if we're going to be looking at this in September, for example, we'll be looking mm -hmm. at the possibility of the parliamentary elections mm -hmm. in Afghanistan. That's where the focus has to be, because that's the ne next test, isn't it, for President Karzai? Well, to have a credible government, you've got to make sure that everybody is aware of the responsibilities they are undertaking. And therefore, there will be jurgers, these meetings of the tribal leaders, between now and then. And it's important for Karzai to convince uh, those of us who are supplying all the, the forces, the, the NATO forces, uh, that he is doing his part. He is getting a, a more responsible government, uh, cleaning up some of the corruption and, 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 and getting the situation in Kandahar where his uh, uh, maverick uh, brother is still with his hands well, deep his in the tools, half-brother with his hands deep in her wallet, uh, Karzai. Well, half-brother's just as bad at the moment, isn't it? Uh, indeed. Tell me, there's just one other thing, uh, uh, John Dickey, and that is that we, again, uh, let's say in what we used to call Western uh, governments, mm -hmm. talk about President Garzai and how he ought to clean up his act, mm -hmm. etc., and we've got some pretty dirty acts of our own which we're trying to clean up. Mm -hmm. um, but it, we don't always get it right here, and so it's not all Karzai getting it wrong, is it? Not really, but in the end, you've just got to play with the hand you're dealt with. Um, you may not like your partner, but if he's the only partner who is capable of cooperating with you, uh, the Americans have found that out. I mean, Obama was keeping uh, Karzai at his distance and then realised that he had to do business with him so that when Karzai went to Washington uh, in the last week, he was given the full treatment uh, and, you know, backslapping uh, followed. But it is the inevitable consequence of, of political life that you cannot choose your partners. You've got to accept what's there on the ground. And you only deal eventually with your enemies, not with your partners. Indeed. You, have, you, you, you dealt with Macarius in Cyprus, you dealt with Joma Kenyatta in Kenya, and you had to deal with Mugabe and Nkomo in the then Rhodesia, now Zimbabwe. And they all eventually get to dine with the Queen. Yeah, interesting. Um, last quick point on this, Julian uh, Thompson. Um, lots of talk about the uh, uh, Taliban spring offensive. It's a sort of World War II, Vietnam uh, War terminology. It's very grand terminology for an insurgency, isn't it? Yes, it is. But it, it is, again, trying. It, it's shorthand, and it's easier to call it that. In, in an article, in, in a paper or on a, a programme than to actually try and define what it is and say it's not an offensive, actually, it's just a, a, an attack or a, a series of opportunities or whatever, as you say, yeah. Yeah. Uh, talking about opportunity, I mean, I bet there are a lot of people in the Treasury now sort of rubbing their hands saying, let's get to the opportunity of hacking into the essential part of all this as far as the British is concerned, and that's how much money we spend on the effort in Afghanistan and elsewhere. The new cabinet coalition, or not, has one thing in common. Each minister's department is getting a financial going over. Defence is the odd one now because, well, obviously, A, the country's at war, and B, there is to be a strategic defence review that will think out to 2040. The BBC's political correspondent and sometimes defence correspondent, Rob Watson, is on the line. Rob, when we talk about defence or any other departmental savings, we think of the Secretary of State, don't we, versus the Chancellor. But it's not the Chancellor, is it? It's the Chief Secretary of the Treasury who actually got the hatchet in his hand. Sort of, although I'd put it slightly differently to that, Christopher, and good afternoon to you and hello to everybody. Uh, no, I, I would put it this way, actually. I would say that what you're going to see in this government is a 
Secretary of State, possibly, versus the deficit reduction hawks and doves in the government. In other words, this coalition government needs, knows that it needs to reduce public spending. We've got a whacking great deficit, but clearly there's going to be a bit of toing and froing between those people who really want to hack into the deficit uh, sooner rather than uh, later and to do so at great depth, uh, and others are a bit more squeamish. But, you see, I get the idea. I mean, traditionally, uh, it wasn't the Chancellor that went to a department. It was the Chief Secretary to the Treasury. Now, in this case, with a coalition, we've got David Laws. David Laws is a Lib Dem MP. And therefore the question comes up, is there a Lib Dem agenda that changes any perceptions of what might happen? Or because it's a, a coalition, doesn't that not matter? Well, I guess the, the answer to that question is, Krista, maybe. <laughs> I mean, we'll just have to wait and see. I, I mean, I guess if you were going to characterise this in broad terms, one suspects that the Liberal Democrat members of the coalition are going to be, I'm not sure if I'm using the right word, more squeamish about deficit reduction than the Conservatives. One other point that I'd throw in, and that is that Let's say the Conservatives had won a majority. They would have known that there were going to need to be big spending cuts absolutely everywhere. They would have been culturally very resistant to the idea of defence spending being cut, but they probably would have known, well, if you're going to dish it out to the rest of the public sector, the defence is probably going to have to get a a bit of a clobbering too, and so I I suspect that that's going to end up being the case anyway. Do we have to take any notice of this new idea, and that's an Office of Budget Responsibility, which is... is it new, will it be a new department or just a new committee or what? Oh, it's a thoroughly new institution, no, no doubt about that. And, and the idea of it, put simply, is, if you like, it's a kind of a watchdog on the Treasury. So whenever the Treasury says, well, we reckon that the economy is going to grow by X percent in the years ahead and that the budget will just about balance itself in this nice sort of way, the uh, Office of uh, Fiscal of Budget Responsibility will be there to say, oh, hang on a minute, we're not quite sure about your figure. So I think it's going to be very important indeed. I tell you what, I bet the Chiefs of Staff are watching the new Secretary of State, Liam Fox, because, like a lot of them, he's untested in, in Cabinet skirmishing, isn't he? Uh, absolutely, is very much an unknown quantity in, in that regard. I, I mean, I guess that the, the Chiefs have, have somewhat got used to to the vast turn, rapid turnover in the uh, in the politician that they have to deal with. So, will it completely phase them? I, I suspect not. I mean, I'm sure that the chiefs can see the lay of the land, and that clearly there are going to have to be some cuts. Uh, I suspect. You know, are they are they any more worried about Liam Fox than they have been about any of the men they've had to deal with in the last few years? Probably not. Yeah, and this one's not going to be Scottish sector as well. That's an advantage, I suppose. Confidence building measure. You could anyway. say that, but I couldn't possibly. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Tell me something. The um, the thing I was looking at this week, and while you're on, you may as well talk about it. Um, I was thinking about the Iraq inquiry. It's not gone away, has it? I mean, it's going to start up again. It was just they just switched off publicly uh, during the election. But they're in America this week, uh, trying to get what from the Americans. Well, you're absolutely right. They're there for five days, and and I can assure you I hadn't forgotten about the Iraq inquiry. Now, they're there for five days. What they've said is that they're having private discussions with a number of people who have insights into the UK's involvement in Iraq over the period being examined by the inquiry. That is a direct quotation from the inquiry, Christopher. But they're not going to get George Bush to come up and uh, talk to them, are they? 
Well, you know, it strikes me that there are, there are sort of two angles to this, aren't there? There's the, if, if you want to really get to the bottom of the politics of it all, and we had an awful lot of the politics of it all, didn't we, when Mr Brown and Mr Blair and some of Mr Blair's closest advisers were testifying, then it strikes me you have got to talk to George W. Bush, Dick Cheney and Donald Rumsfeld because the kind of contacts that were happening were at that sort of level when it came to the really big decisions. But, but I can see that it would be perfectly possible, knowing the American culture as I do, that uh, you could get access to current and former members of the Pentagon and State Department who are probably pretty happy to rattle off what they know. Well, as a former Washington correspondent as well, um, tell me what sort of flexibility there is in the Pentagon and, and State Department, in, let's say, in what we would call the civil service that would allow them to let out any skeletons that would tell us more about the British role? Well, it's certainly pretty new territory to me, I have to say that, Christopher. I mean, it's certainly the case that uh, if Congress summons you, if you're subpoenaed to appear before the Congress, either a committee in the Senate or in the House of Representatives, you better show up. <laughs> mm. it's, it's as simple as that. I mean, it's, it's perfectly true that you can... Uh, you can uh, take the, the first. You can take the Fifth Amendment. You can say that you're not going to say anything, but by and large, you've got to go there. I, I'm not entirely sure how it would work, but I, I go back to my first point. I suspect that, given that the the inquiry is saying is it's perfectly happy to offer anonymity or to consult with any of the people it's speaking to before publishing whatever it is that they've got to say, I, you know, I, I don't anticipate them having a real problem in getting flexibility from former and uh, current officials. That's good, isn't it? It's going to be a good story. When's well, I may be proved to be entirely wrong. <laughs> <laughs> well, it'd be a first time for everything. Listen, um, do, we know when, do we know when it starts up again publicly here in London? Uh, we're not, I'm not entirely sure about that. They haven't announced that. it yet, have they? No, I'm not sure that they have announced it. They've, they've, talked about these, um, they've talked about some of the things, the little trips that they've been doing. They said that they were in Paris for a day on the 4th of May and that they're uh, currently in the United States. They should be back in a, in a day or two. So we know, what the, we know where they are now. I'm not entirely sure where they're going. <laughs> OK, none of us is. OK, Rob Watson, thank you very much indeed. Let's talk about the... the John, just before we go, I think there is an, an opening there uh, that might enlighten us, and that is in this respect, that um, um, Lord Goldsmith claimed that before he Who went... Who was Attorney General? Attorney General. He claimed that before he went to the United States, he was not convinced of the legality of going to the war, and he had with him all the evidence given to him by the, the two legal experts of the Foreign Office. When he came back from Washington, he was convinced... Now, Surely, uh, ah, see where you're going. People will go to the uh, other end and say, "How did you convince Goldsmith that there was a legal case for war?" And why was he limping when he? And came also, there is the Goldsmith. other opening, perhaps, of those that were taking notes of the famous uh, Crawford uh, Ranch meeting in Texas between Blair and, and Bush, which were not disclosed. And, and uh, Gordon Brown said he didn't know what actually happened there. There must be somebody with a note who might be now prepared to enlarge upon the actual commitment of Britain to stand beside uh, Bush. So don't write off Chalcott's inquiry. No, I think there's a lot still okay. to be unravelled. Do you want to talk about the Falklands now, John? Um, mm. I, I was listening to the Argentine president, mm. uh, Christine Fernandez de, uh, de Kirchner, and um, mm. she was at the EU Latin American mm. summit in in um, mm. in Madrid this week, and she said the British government is refusing to discuss the sovereignty mm. of the Falklands. 
Well, I thought that was all settled, of course. Well, We're not is, discussing mm, it. It is uh, settled, and then successive foreign secretaries have said it, it's not up for, for debate. But uh, Mrs. de Kirchner is going around. She went to the UN. She wanted it discussed there. She's gone to this EU Latin America forum. I think it's a reflection of her own domestic difficulties at home in uh, Buenos Aires that uh, her handling of the economy is now suspect and... Uh, this is one way of diverting attention and also the fact that there is this great prospect of oil in the waters around Falklands which is being explored as we speak and this is a prize that she'd like to get her hands on some of it and therefore this is her way of focusing attention on her case. Yeah. Julian, I mean, 82 to now, long, long time. Did you think that this debate or whatever was was going to go on and on and on like this. Yeah, I was pretty sure it would go on because I know one or two Argentine people, um, officers, who say, you know, we are going to go on with it. Uh, I don't mean they're going to attack, but they're going to go on with it. And, and of course, it doesn't help when someone like Hillary, Hillary Clinton says, you know, I'm prepared to negotiate when there's actually nothing to negotiate about. So and she encourages, no... her, you know, the Argentine president to go on banging on about it. And she's got no authority to negotiate. She's got no authority to negotiate. Yeah. She shouldn't have said it. Yeah, and your mm. Foreign Office Minister chap, Jeremy Brown, uh, John, sorry, not yours, but you know the no, chap no, there. I'm, uh, um, he's a Lib Dem anyway. Yeah, uh, mm. uh, you, the principle of self-determination as set out in the United Charter, United Nations mm. Charter, applies to the island. He says, job done. That's it. And that is a statement that's made as regards uh, Spain's claims on uh, Gibraltar. Once you say that it is the right of the people to determine the future, end of story. OK. Uh, we're a bit late, not much. It's uh, 31 minutes past the hour. You're listening to SITREP on BFPS Radio 2 with me, Christopher Lee. Still with me, Major General Julian Thompson the former Daily Mail diplomatic editor, John Dickey, and the cyber warfare analyst, Tim Stevens. Uh, if you've just joined us, you can catch the whole programme simply by going into bfbs.com forward slash sitrep and clicking on Listen Again. Well, the conference in New York to renew the Nuclear Non-Proliferation Treaty has reached a halfway point. So far, so good, or what? On the line from the University of Bradford, Professor Paul Rogers. Um... 184 countries, is that about right, Paul? I mean, what are they actually trying to do? It's not going to sort anything. It's the sort of preamble to sorting something, isn't it? It is, in a way. I mean, a lot of things are happening in parallel to the conference itself. There has been progress uh, between the Americans and the Russians on strategic nuclear weapons, which, which is good news. Obama seems clear to even think about the possibility of eventually getting to a nuclear-free world. So the background context is quite good. When you get to the specifics of the conference, uh, uh, quite a large number of countries are calling on the five nuclear powers that are signatories to speed up the rate at which they cut down the number of nuclear weapons. I think it was yesterday that Germany, interestingly with the support from 10 European Union states, including the Poles, uh, put forward a, a proposal to irreversibly reduce and elim eliminate the US and Russian tactical weapons. The Russians have turned that down flat, but the very fact that this is coming not from countries distant from Europe, but from European states is quite significant. Um, the other thing is that quite a large number of countries really want some sort of timetable for further cutbacks. They say, you know, the treaty's been going over 40 years and just not enough has happened to fulfil Article 6, which requires countries like Britain and China to actually go further than they've actually gone. I mean, a lot of people 
probably see the the MPT review conference. Uh, in terms of non-proliferation, um, they're really talking about strategic systems. I mean, to talk about tactical systems will be a surprise to many. It will be, but, I mean, if you go back to the period of the Cold War when there were, what, the best part of 20,000 strategic nuclear weapons, there were far more, nearly twice that number of tactical nuclear weapons. The, the smaller ones uh, were much more widespread. And although the numbers are very much down, I mean, um, down almost to zero in Britain's case, although we do have some small warheads for the uh, Trident missile, um, essentially things are very much down, but they're still around, and they're around in quite large numbers. And I think the, the background to this is that so many countries, including many that could have developed nuclear weapons but chose not to do so, really are getting fed up at the low rate of progress. And that's in spite of the relatively good news that's come out from the American-Russian negotiations. That um, President Obama's uh, sort of mood speech in Prague, which is people started picking up on the idea of a nuclear-free world yet again, the United Kingdom and France are not actually running with that mood, are they? They're not, no. I mean, this is one of the very interesting things that we're going to see is whether the replacement of Trident really actually comes into the Strategic Defence Review, which is now underway. There's been a lot of resistance to that, but the Lib Dems, Liberal Democrats, might have some say in that. But no, the, the British and the French are not really in this game. Um, they both see themselves as sort of major states and have this uh, interesting idea that nuclear weapons are a sign of, of greatness. Of course, there are the Chinese as well. They're relatively small in the nuclear game but have no plans to give anything up. And then you come to the other states, the ones that have never signed. That's uh, what Pakistan, India, Israel, of course, which is a major nuclear weapon state, even though it won't admit it, and then uh, North Korea. So, yes, it, Britain and France are those states that really do see nuclear weapons as being a ticket to big power status, and there's no real inclination at the government level to change that at the moment. Where, we, where do we get to with Iran? Iran, well, this is, in a sense, the something which is in the background of the whole conference. Uh, uh, and uh, essentially, there is quite a, a big push from a number of Arab states to move towards some sort of nuclear-free zone across the Middle East. But even to go to anywhere with that, you need have, to, have, to have Israel actually uh, admitting publicly that it had nuclear weapons, and Israel is just not prepared to do that. But it's certainly the case that there's pressure is growing for this, um, and, of course, some people say, well, if you actually went for a nuclear-free zone in the Middle East, that would have to include the likes of Iran as well. And Israel. And Israel. But uh, sort of Israel say they will not do this until they get a complete peace deal right across the region. And in a sense, that throws us back to the whole business of whether one could get a peace deal, the Saudi plan or something like that. But that's inevitably linked to the nuclear issue in the region. But I seem to remember talking about this at the 1995 nuclear uh, uh, proliferation review conference and they were talking about then of a middle east uh, nuclear free zone we haven't it, got anywhere it's been on the table for a very long time um, the only difference now is that it, with the obama era in and these other moves in other directions um, and you have people like George Schultz and Henry Kissinger and others saying, look, we've got to think about moving to a nuclear-free world, even if it takes time. In a sense, the climate has changed subtly, which means that, yes, uh, it's 15 years since this was last debated, but things look a little bit different now, and I think people are taking it just that little bit more seriously. That at least is a sign that the non-proliferation treaty review process does still have some life in it. Okay. 
Paul Rogers, thank you very much indeed. Listening to that, the Pentagon correspondent of the Times in Washington, Mike Evans. Mike, um, you hear Paul saying there about George Shultz and uh, Henry Kissinger, these great names from the past, saying, oh, you know, we've got to have a nuclear-free, a possibility of a nuclear-free world now. That's, that's, that's really is a turnaround, isn't it? It is to a certain extent. Uh, um, Kissinger and Schultz in particular have come round to the view uh, in their veteran state uh, that uh, nuclear weapons no longer have a role to play, that the, the issue of deterrence has changed, uh, the whole whole world has changed, and therefore we don't need nuclear weapons anymore. Um, I find that um, a lot of uh, people of that ilk have come round to that view as well, uh, British and, uh, and others. Uh, and so I'm not particularly surprised by that, but but I think they would probably welcome the sort of Obama uh, move, which is to try and put nuclear weapons right back on the agenda again and to show that the Americans particularly want to show that they are prepared to reduce their weapons stockpile um, and take take the rest of the world with them, as it were. But when in 1986, I mean, the then-President uh, Reagan, Ronald Reagan of uh, the United States, came out with something very similar at the Reykjavik conference with uh, uh, Mr. Gorbachev. Uh, this was poo-pooed by the likes of Henry Kissinger. Um, well, there we are. Um, <laughs> this is why you know, things do change. Uh, Reagan, if I recall, actually said that he wanted to get rid of all ballistic missiles, which I know Margaret Thatcher um, actually went ballistic when she heard about it. <laughs> um, uh, Gorbachev, likewise, was somewhat uh, taken aback by it and didn't didn't grab it. You would have thought he would have done, but he didn't. Uh, probably because it was um, way beyond, uh, well, way far too early to even consider such a thing. Um, so, yeah, uh, Kissinger in those days would have said that nuclear weapons were a vital role. But of course, that was Cold War times. We're now in a post-Cold War where nuclear weapons no longer uh, seem to have such a um, an obvious role to play. But it's very difficult to believe um, that, for example, nuclear weapon theory is not at the top of Pentagon strategic thinking. Um, it, it is. Uh, the Pentagon uh, has not in any sense uh, downgraded the credibility and value uh, and importance of having nuclear weapons. Uh, Robert Gates, the U.S. Um, Secretary of Defense has underlined that uh, recently, uh, not only for protecting uh, the United States, but for protecting American allies. And European allies rely on the nuclear umbrella today as much as they did during the Cold War. But I think just the, the, the thinking now is that maybe that sort of um, uh, doctrine is, is no longer so relevant. And this is what Obama is tapping into and suggesting that you know, those who do have nuclear weapons can reduce them uh, to uh, a, a much smaller stockpile. Of course, we're talking about American and Russian missiles because they have 90% of the uh, nuclear stockpiles in the world. Um, and his hope is, which I think is probably um, uh, not going to bear fruit, is that other countries who are uh, nuclear ambitious, such as Iran, uh, will therefore react by uh, dis you know, not going ahead with their nuclear program because they can see America and Russia reducing theirs. I don't think that argument works particularly. Just a final final thought on this um, and about the Pentagon. It's not just a question of who's got, I don't know, three and a half thousand warheads. 
It's the whole wiring diagram of United States force structures that are involved. If you said, right, we reduce drastically or to zero uh, nuclear systems, you'd have to rewrite the whole American defence structure. Well, you would. I mean, I don't think that's impossible. Um, you know, uh, NATO and others are all supposed to be uh, transforming themselves, and uh, America um, has a transformation command, by the way, which uh, is all about, you know, moving doctrine and structures and infrastructure into the uh, into the next generation um so it's not out of the out of the question but you're right of course uh, the, the the issue of nuclear doctrine nuclear deterrent is embedded in uh, american military power and uh, as of now nothing has changed uh, fewer warheads fewer submarine uh, tubes launch tubes um fewer bombers, you know, uh, doesn't actually change the framework, if you like, of the of American military power. It, it, it looks good on the diplomatic stage, but militarily, uh, it makes not much difference. Okay, Michael Evans, thank you very much indeed. Uh, Jill and Thompson, there's sometimes when you're talking to people like Mike Evans, and he's sort of talking about the transformation command in the US military, you start to, I start to think, well, maybe I'm missing something here. Maybe it is either somebody's putting in commands and bits into the wiring diagram and it looks good or, or whatever, or something really is happening that's going to change the whole concept of how we think the military structures in the next five, ten years, that's all. I think, I think, the, I think the Americans are thinking about it. Certainly the information I get from is they're not sort of stuck in the in what he calls the veteran state, which I think is a rather nice mm. way of describing a state of mind lighter than some um, I think they are thinking ahead uh, I hope they are because I think it's very important that, that they do that mm. John they Dickey are, they are doing that are they not I mean they, the yeah. heads of government of the entire NATO alliance are meeting in Lisbon in uh, uh, October November, November um, to discuss the strategic yeah. uh, concept I mean the alliance formed in 1948 was to counter the communist threat um, by the Cold War, then in 1999, the concept was in terms of NATO being a peacekeeping organization in Bosnia uh, and in Kosovo. Now you've got a completely different situation, and that's why Madeleine Albright has been engaged with the former American Secretary of State with 12 so called experts producing. Um, a report which is to be the basis uh, on which the alliance will consider. And it is a confusing document. On the one hand, it says that um, the uh, alliance should not be in the business of, uh, of being a global troubleshooter. And yet, a few paragraphs further down, it says that uh, while it's a regional uh, organization, there should be more versatility and effectiveness of operations far from home. And I think they're telling the Europeans that they've got to be able to provide more men on the ground to deal with these new situations. And this is a, per a perception that Madeleine Albright's had for, as far as I remember, 20 years. In indeed. That the purpose of European NATO is to lend mm -hmm. a bit of elbow grease to American perceptions of the rest of the world. Indeed. I mean, as we all know, the, the alliance was originally uh, dealing with threats inside uh, the area of the alliance. There was nothing out of area that was acceptable. But now uh, that is, is past tense. 
the future has got to be in terms of where do you exercise that influence without being you know, an international troubleshooter without limits. OK. Do you know, I'm, I'm not sure, um, Tim Stevens from King's College, I'm not sure this is not unconnected with the meeting next week uh, in uh, Tallinn, the Estonian mm. capital. <clears throat> it's the 13th. I mean, I, I missed the first 12. <laughs> I have to say, the 13th NATO Cyber Defence Workshop there is a connection, isn't it, with what we're talking there here? There is, yes, Go absolutely. Um, <clears throat> I'm sure the timing's coincidence, but the, the, the thinking behind this is very, very similar. As John's just said, basically, NATO's zone of crisis, if you like, is shrinking, but its zone of influence is growing. And we've got to the point now where NATO perceives itself at some level as having global influence. And, of course, cyberspace, which is, of course, the new thing that the US um, is actually uh, rejigging its force structure to, to deal with, for example, and the UK will do it and many other nations. But NATO is looking at this too, cyberspace as a global environment in which it has to have the capacity and capabilities to act and react. Stop there a second. It tell me, tell us all, exactly what is cyberspace? <laughs> in a sentence. <laughs> in, in a sentence. Um, I tend to think of it as the global information infrastructure of the Internet, for example, <clears throat> and other communication systems, plus the things that everyone does on that. Yeah. So that's a very, very broad definition of what cyberspace is. But effectively, it's everything that's connected by computers and digital information. So once Tim Berners-Lee invented the Internet... He invented the web. The web. Yeah. Yeah. Then cyberspace, cyber defence, cyber security became uh, sort of bolt-ons to this? Well, that's, that's an interesting point. I mean, people have, since the beginning of the Internet, which, of course, started largely with the US military, people have looked at ways of making it secure. Now, of course, security is a contested concept in any environment. Um, but for a long time, the Internet sort of chugged along nicely without too much security at all. People often refer to it as the Wild West, you know, new frontiers of experience and endeavour. Um, but it soon became clear that people were doing some things that not everyone wanted them to do so criminality uh, uh, and, well, like and money laundering and exactly or whatever. That, that kind of, any to, any form of criminality you can think of probably has uh, other uh, it's either going on in or through cyberspace or has a very near analog um, so once you get to that point where, where particularly governments are saying hang on we don't like what this group of people are doing or this individual or we don't like the fact that terrorists are propagandizing we don't like the fact that foreign states might be messing with our own intelligence systems our computer networks you get to a point where somebody has to sort of decide what security needs to be delivered by whom where and how and that's the stage we're at at the moment you see this whole security thing uh, is fascinating before we had all this before we had, if you like, cyber, mm. before we had uh, emails, websites, uh, wah, wah, wah sort of thing, uh, technology. Um, what you had to do if you were an intelligence officer, you had to recruit some guy or, or some woman, and, and if it was a woman especially, a secretary, and you'd have to infiltrate them into a department and say get to the photocopying machine because that's where mm. all the information actually gets out now um, I mean, I'm not suggesting he does but uh, a 14 year old can actually hack into this and anybody, well not anybody but you can start hacking into the sort of information which before you had to run agents for theoretically yes um, the, the ease with which you can hack into systems has been grossly overstated in my view 
But that is not to say that there aren't vulnerabilities in all systems, because there are. Um, it's, it, there is no such thing that we know of as a perfectly secure computer network. There are always ways in. So yes, if, there's still quite a high barrier to entry in terms of skills, very low barrier to entry in terms of technology, but you have to have the skills to be able to do that. You know, I can sit here and talk all day about technology and hacking, but it doesn't mean I can hack into the Pentagon like they do in the movies. Can you? No. Really? <laughs> I bet you can. I bet I can. Right. Thank you. Well, that's a bit disappointing. Um, but you do have this conference in, uh, mm. in, in Tallinn next week, a whole section which is uh, devoted to, let me quote you, dynamic risks management and remedies to victims of cyber attacks. That's quite a... You, know, you don't have to have much imagination to see what they're getting at here. No, you don't. I mean, the, the, the slightly ironic thing about this, of course, is that we've not yet had a cyber war that we can definitively say is, is, a, is warfare uh, conducted in and through cyberspace. We've had little conflicts and confrontations. But yet we are talking about this, you know, the victims of cyber attacks. Now, I've not actually seen that phrase before today, hmm. um, but it's a very interesting one to, to equate organizations and governments and militaries as being victims of cyber attacks. I think that's a very in interesting terminology. But there is this conference, well, this workshop next week, but of course two weeks after that, there's a much larger conference also at the um, uh, Cooperative Cyber Defense Center of Excellence, the NATO's uh, organization in Tallinn, a much larger conference, which is slightly more open. Um, the one next week is very technical, legal. The one after that is far more to do with uh, a strategy and and, and operational stuff. What's that, how you, how, you, how you get involved, how you actually do it, or how you counter it? Uh, well, this is the interesting thing about the, 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 the Albright report, is that... Um, this is Madeleine Albright. Yes, indeed, yes, yes. Um, it's the fact that three years ago when um, Estonia, and then two years ago when Georgia had problems, but principally the Estonia 2007 cyber attacks, at the time, Estonia, from what we understand, did ask NATO, does Article 5 collective defence apply in this mm. case? And NATO was very reluctant to say yes or no, partly because it didn't know what on earth it was going, what on earth was required of it. Three years later, NATO is now actually with its new uh, strategic concept or towards a new strategic concept actually saying that if it reaches a particular political threshold, a cyber attack might warrant collective defence or a collective response. And that's a great difference. In other um, words, a hack on one is a hack on everyone. That's what they're really saying, isn't it? They might be, but only as... She, I think she quite carefully said if it reaches a, a, a critical political threshold, which is a very different thing yeah, from an operational what one. she's saying here... I mean, I've got a quote here. Uh, John Dickey, I think you raised it. The next significant attack on the Alliance may well come down a fibre-optic cable. I mean, does she actually know what she's talking about? I mean, how seriously would, a, let's say, a new defence secretary have to take this? I think very seriously. I mean, they're, they're um, you know, surrounded by experts uh, like ours here, and, and they are made very well aware of the dangers of uh, their activities. Uh, and if uh, she's not, you know, uh, overestimating the problem when she says that, you know, an attack could come by that method. And Tim, we're, we're, I mean, we're not mm. slow on this, are we, in the United Kingdom? No, no. I mean, I think it's very important to, to, to reiterate that there's a lot of coulds, mights and maybes in this. The threats are there, that's undoubtedly the case. Whether those translate into risks to national security is a different issue. But in direct answer to the question you asked, John, yes, the current administration treats, treats the threats very, very seriously indeed. You see, this, again, we're back onto this report. It says, 
Effective cyber defence requires the means to prevent, detect, respond to and recover from attacks. Now, mm. maybe that is thinking out to 2040, I don't know. But it, given the speed at which this whole area of uh, cyber uh, expands and generates, it's not very long, is it? <laughs> well, what's the interesting thing about that phrase is what's missing from it, which is deter. Mm. Um, and since we've been talking about nuclear, uh, one of the big things that people are thinking about at the moment is whether deterrence operates in cyberspace. Is there a cyber deterrent? Mm. What the, could it be? Uh, what could be the deterrent? Yeah. Um, I think you're going to have to fall back on conventional deterrence because cyberspace uh, is an inherently offensive environment. Uh, because basically you can go off and do something, run away and hide, and no one may ever find you. That's not yeah. the same with conventional or nuclear arms. Yeah. Um, so I, I think it's very interesting that they've dropped deterrence. It's dropped off the U.S. strategic agenda. You won't find it in the U.K. cybersecurity strategy, and you're not finding it now in NATO's uh, new operating uh, strategic concept either. And I think that's a very interesting thing. It's, it's very much falling, falling back on a traditional offensive defensive model. Um, but they're taking it incredibly seriously. You know, the potential is there. Bits and pieces happen. Very little of it makes it outside the classified circles. But what we do know is that the threat is real. Um, Tim, don't you think the Chinese are probably working on that as we speak, finding uh, some means of deterring it? Some means of deterring it. Mm. It depends what sort of deterrence you're talking mm. about. If you're just talking about deterrence by punishment, mm. which is the cold, principally mm. the Cold War model, mm. we have mm. a big stick. You attack us, we'll hit you with it. If you're talking about deterrence by denial, mm. then in, in the sense that that's, that's absolutely underlying what NATO, the US and the UK are thinking of, particularly the UK and by the looks of it, this new NATO document as well, which is saying if our systems are good enough, there's no point in you attacking us because you won't be able to get in. That's one sort of uh, deterrence by denial. And the other one is, is if our systems are resilient enough, you can attack us all you like, but we're going to be back up to speed within hours. So what's the point of doing it in the first place? It's a very different form of deterrence than we've been used to during the Cold War. Uh, it's interesting. Go, if you go back to the 1968 Outer Space Treaty, mm. they were arguing then that when you got systems, I wasn't there, but arguing then that if you had systems, uh, satellite systems, and you wanted to knock out an intelligence satellite, don't bother to knock out the intelligence satellite. Just go and hit the ground station, mm. and nobody will actually be able to mm. hear you. Julian, this is it. You see, put this in context of what we've been talking about, what we live by, and that is, say, an Af a war in Afghanistan. It's not so far removed, is it? Except the guys on the ground are really just relying still on the simplest forms of communication. Yes, they are. And, and it's very interesting, this whole business of cyber warfare, the, the, the fact that the, the, these chaps are such a fuss about whether they're going to be deported or not will, will, will actually picked up on the internet, weren't they? They, they were actually intercepted in, in, in some way by, in cyberspace, weren't they? Covert, commu uh, covert uh, yeah, communications. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, and I, I return to what I said before, the way you defeat that, if you're one of those guys, is never to use mobile telephones, the internet, and everything's done by, you know, talking to people. Mm. Yeah, that's right. Absolutely. Well, Nick Clegg's yeah. going to ban it all anyway, isn't he? Mm. He says that we're not, we're not going to watch anybody, we're not going to uh, have no surveillance anymore, and we're all going to be free of, uh, of, of surveillance. Might be in trouble. Listen, I want to move on. When is that conference, the other the, one? The, the other more one, complex one? It's, I think it's June 13th, 14th, something like that. We really ought to talk about that 
at the time and see what else comes out. Indeed, yeah. Yeah, come, come in and we'll talk about that. Listen, uh, very quick, John Dickey, uh, um, the, the Prime Minister, um, that is Mr Cameron, that mm. one, uh, off this evening to have uh, supper uh, with President Sarkozy in Paris. What's the French captain to command the Royal Navy's next generation of carriers? That's not Mr. Mr. Cameron, of course, but Mr. Sarkozy may, may want one. Not necessarily on the agenda, but it's very interesting that uh, his first uh, trip outside the United Kingdom is to Paris, and it's a very appropriate time because uh, uh, Sarkozy, who wasn't on the best of terms with Gordon Brown, uh, has now uh, fallen out with his uh, partner in Berlin, Angela Merkel, uh, was said to be shouting down the phone at her last week. So it might be a good occasion to revive some of the aspects of the Entente Cordiale. Yes, I see. Uh, and it might well mean, uh, in defence terms, that procurement could be rationalised between the two countries. And if we want, if we want carriers, we're going to help. The, the French are going to help us with them. So we give, we give a drive to a four star mm. over there. No, no, I think, <laughs> we, I think yeah. we keep on this country. Okay, Julian, there's a relief, isn't it? It is. Um, uh, uh, flying Rhino, Army's largest integrated land air military mm. exercise, two thousand troops, uh, First Armour Division. Um, it's. It's important, fire support teams, forward air controllers in the Czech Republic. Russians don't like this, though, do they? No, they don't like it because they don't like us tramping over what they regard as their space. Yeah. It used to be their they space. They're all near abroad. That's it. They don't like it at all. OK. Uh, John, last point. What's this about... Um, a diamond scandal in Zimbabwe. We've got 20 seconds. Tell I us would take scandal. longer on that, but uh, the world's richest uh, source of uh, gem diamonds, not the ch cheaper industrial diamonds, has been found in a place called Morangi uh, near the Mozambique border by a company called uh, Africa Consolidated Resources, founded by a white Zimbabwean with blacks, been taken over by the CIO, the Central Intelligence Organization, which is Mugabe's thugs, and the illicit Diamonds called blood diamonds are being exported via South Africa. It's a shame. It really is. That it's amount it's of money could resolve all the economic problems. It's a great story. Listen, we're going. It's a great story. Mm. If we only had more money, we'd stay. Tim Stevens, John Dickey, Julian Thompson, thank you very much indeed. Uh, next week, war games with the Israelis. Bye now. Footwear with Christopher Lee.